This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for the invite to come back here. And most thank you to the group for coming uh, because your being here tells me you're interested in staying healthy and interested in learning uh, two passions that are near and dear to my heart. Many of you know I came from the East Coast in the 90s up to Scripps Clinic to deal with one simple little problem, which was cardiology and cardiovascular disease, why people have blockages in their arteries and veins. And in the 90s, I'll be honest with you, I was only interested in devices, devices like the coronary stent, which really has pioneered the way we handle cardiac emergencies. When you need a stent, it's a great thing to have. And so the ability to fix a blood vessel this in 10 minutes and put a stent in is really a miracle of modern medicine and whether it's done here at UCSD or at another institution, uh, it has now become state-of-the-art care for cardiovascular emergencies and urgencies. But the challenges we see today are really waking us up to the disconnect between the great care that we give on the acute side, right? So if if someone has a heart attack or stroke or gets hit with a truck, that's probably not the time to say, let's have a pint of blueberries or take some ginkgo biloba today, right? That's the time you say, get me to a trauma center, a major medical center. And that's where MDs like myself are trained. We're trained in acute care. So if someone comes to the emergency room and they say they have chest pain, our brain starts going, is it a heart attack? Is it a blood clot? You know, what's, is it an aortic dissection? We go through what we call a differential diagnosis. So we're very, very good on the acute care side. Where we stumble and where our training is lacking and why I've gotten so involved in a field which we call integrative health and integrative medicine is because we're not trained to prevent disease. And we're not trained when someone does have a series of problems to handle them in ways that are different than take this drug, have this surgery. And so I spent the last uh, 20 years or so of my life looking at ways that we can enable people to get healthy using some of nature's miracles and using lifestyle change. So this is the issue we have today. You know, if you look on your left, these are countries, right? And this is Mexico down here, and this is the amount of spending on healthcare. So you have Mexico and Poland and Portugal, and then you have this middle area of Australia and the UK and Finland. And on this side, you have life expectancy. So you can see this straight line that sort of goes from the UK to a life expectancy of about 80 years here. And you say, where's the United States in all of this? Well, here's the expenditure, right? So we're going on up, up, up. Here's Switzerland. Here's the United States. We are, and we laugh about it, but we're off the charts. And we really have to ask why. And now you look at life expectancy and say, well, you know, we spent all this money. We should all be living to 130 and feeling good. And yet, we're way down here. So you can argue this in any way you want. You can say, 
Uh, it's too much too late. It's too much on intervention. We need more money on prevention. We need to clean up the food supply in the country, the air supply, the water supply. It's all of it, right? It's not just one thing. So conventional medicine is great when you need it. You need surgery, you need an antibiotic, a diagnostic test, it's great, but falls flat in these other areas. Now, this is our reality today, you know, the World Economic Forum said that chronic disease is the most severe threat we have to global economic development. And what people aren't talking about is this is not just obesity related to eating the wrong foods, right, or not exercising, or playing video games. It's also related to what's going on in our agricultural industry with atrazine, for example, uh, being linked to obesity, with persistent organic pollutants being linked to diabetes and mitochondrial dysfunction. So we can't just say this is because a certain class of fast food has made it to China. It's much more complex than that. Now, I know everyone's into the big debate about the politics and, you know, all of these red states are not Republican states, right? Some, some of them might be, but for the sake of the map, and the map hasn't changed very much, the red states have greater than 25% of the population meeting the definition of obesity. So this is really a crisis, and if you say, okay, what about these orange states? You know, this area where gravy is a beverage, right? <laughs> but where more atrazine is also used, right, in the agricultural industry, has greater than 30% of the population as obese. And then you have Colorado, who still continues to look pretty good, um, but now with their new uh, munchies and everything, we'll have, to, we'll have to see how Colorado pans out. Yes, uh, this is really a sad, sad situation. And this is a combination of genes, like the thrifty gene, you know, and it's a combination of food, and it's a combination of poor quality food, and sugary drinks and not having proper physical fitness and again contamination of the planet. So I was trained to think this way as a conventional Western MD. So you guys know how to play this game. If you were to come to a doctor and say every time I eat I feel a burning sensation in here, what would you call it? Yeah, GERD. I'm hearing it. Reflux. GERD. Right? Or if you said, every time I exercise, my knee is creaking, cracking, and it hurts, what would you call it? Arthritis. So we play this little game. It's called name it, blame it, tame it. Right? So this is what it looks like. You come in, you say, oh, I have heartburn. Uh, most of my patients can make the diagnosis. And, you know, we'll say, oh, take a proton pump inhibitor or an H2 blocker. We have a drug for that. Oh, you have a migraine? Well, we have a drug for that. Oh, you have arthritis? Well, we have a drug for that. Irritable bowel? We have a drug for that. And you're taking all these pills so you're depressed, and guess what? We have a drug for that. So this is what I call the ill-to-the-pill thinking. 
And this is why people come in to see me with a bag of 16 pills, but, but on the other side of the equation, some people play the game the sick to the supplement, right? And I'm not so fond of that either, because then we end up with, okay, we're going to take 10 different supplements. We'll take St. John's wort instead of the SSRI. We'll take Slippery M. What's wrong with this model? Anyone want to guess what's wrong with it? Yeah. Right. It's not getting to the underlying cause of the situation. So if someone has heartburn, my first question should be, how much tomato sauce are you eating at night? Right? How much carbonated beverages are you drinking? How many cans of Coke are you drinking? How much coffee do you drink? What is the underlying cause of your heartburn? Or if someone is depressed, is it because the vitamin D level is low? You know this. Some people get depressed because they're not exposed to sunlight, right? We call it seasonal affective disorder. Other people may be depressed because they just had an incident in their life, death of a loved one or something that's leading to the depression. So if someone has low vitamin D or someone needs more sunlight, would you give all those people the same antidepressant pill? No, of course not. So this ill-to-the-pill thinking is what I invite you to say, how can we start moving away from that? And what can we do to, so that we're not into this quagmire? I'm not against drugs. I use plenty of medications in my practice. But I'm always looking, is there something that we can get to you know, if someone comes to me and they have high blood pressure, of course I'm going to recommend medication to keep them safe if I need to. But do you think in some people too much sodium in the diet causes high blood pressure? And it's not only, and I know this is an educated group, it's not just a high sodium, it's the imbalance between the sodium and the potassium ratio, right? So when you eat green leafy vegetables and things like that, you're getting lots of potassium. So it's that ratio that, do you think stress raises blood pressure? Absolutely. Do you think not exercising? Do you know for every kilogram of weight you lose, every kilogram of weight you lose, you drop your blood pressure 1.6 millimeters of mercury. So if you're carrying 10 or 20 or 15 extra pounds of weight, you say, wow, I can, I can improve my blood pressure just by exercising and decreasing my weight. So how do we, sit, how do we start to get to the underlying cause? Now, this I, I have a little habit of asking people when I see them to bring me all their medications. <laughs> well, even though my appointments are 90 minutes... <laughs> It would take three hours to get through this. And this is a very educated dentist. And I said to him, where did you get all this stuff? And he said, well, I go from specialist to specialist to specialist, and everyone gives me uh, something different. So this is what we're seeing. We're seeing over $310 billion being spent on pharmaceutical therapies. We are one of the few countries in the world where you watch TV at night, and aside from hearing the Democratic and Republican debate, what do you hear? Right? 
you have people in bathtubs talking about taking one drug, right? And you have, if you're depressed, you take this drug. And in the background, what do you hear? People are dancing in the front. In the background, you hear this drug may cause suicidal ideation and may cause problems. And people are dancing and smiling, and there's all this stuff going on in the back. And do they think we're really that silly that we don't get it? Right? I know this group gets it. So we spend uh, billions of dollars, and the top ones are what? What would you guess? What would be one of the big ones we spend a lot of money? Cholesterol, right. Satin therapy, yeah. Prozac, I heard. So it's, right, so you guys got it. So it's statin therapy, it's antacids, it's antidepressants, and it's antipsychotics. So basically, as a country, we have high cholesterol and we're either depressed and we have heartburn, right? So, and we're giving these drugs to children. And I, I personally have a lot of issue with that. I think, again, we need to get to what's going on, what's the underlying cause. So this is where I think we are right now. I have to be honest with you. I think all this talk about... You know, should everyone have health care or should some people not have health I believe everyone should have health care, right? But I also believe that we all have to take responsibility for our health, right? Because this is what we, we find ourselves. Let's, you know, rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and we're not, get, we're not fixing the problem. And the problem is big, as you saw in the beginning. So this is what the Institute of Medicine president, Harvey Feinberg, has to say. And I won't read the whole thing, but he says, while the length of life has improved in the United States, other countries have gained life years even faster. And our relative standing in the world has fallen. The nation's current health trajectory is lower in success and higher in cost than it should be. The cost of inaction is high. What country ranks number one in obesity? We do. What country ranks number one in diabetes? We do. Right? So uh, the cost of inaction is high, and that would be true. Well, I like Mark Twain. He says some practical things, and he said, It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And I'll be honest, in the 90s, when I was just stenting, and my world was a stent and a statin, I really thought I was curing cardiovascular disease. I would reach over to my patients and say, you're fixed. But I started to realize I was just fixing 16 millimeters of a vessel, or 12 millimeters, when we know our vessels run from the top of our brain to the tips of our toes. What was I doing to turn off the faucet? And what was even scarier, when I think back on it, was people would have these procedures in the hospital, and then they would go to their recovery room or the ICU, and the food tray would come. And the food tray would have roast beef and mayo on white bread. And sure, you know, uh, it, it wasn't representing health. So I began to realize we have this big disconnect between the science of disease... Like, we know 
okay, we're going to put this stent in because it has less restenosis than that stent. We're going to give aspirin and effiant or aspirin and Plavix to prevent clots from forming. We have the science of disease that we spend a lot of money on. But the science of health, we're not translating into practice. And that's my goal, is to educate into professionals of all types and community. Is how do we take that information, which is sitting in the medical literature, and translate it into practice in the same way we translate the science of disease into practice? So this is what we know. We know that 70 to 90% of the things that we call disease, chronic disease, is related to lifestyle and environment. Who you eat with, what you eat. Are you eating with anger? Are you, are you happy? Is your glass half full? Are you optimistic? Do you have a community? Are you socially connected? Where are you at emotionally, mentally, spiritually? All of that determines our health. Our genes are important. Our genes are important, but you have to think of the genes, in my opinion, this way. If I have a book of life that has 23 chapters that I inherit from my parents, my 23 chapters of life, the genes I turn on and off are determined by the life that I live. Right? I'm fascinated by the identical twin studies because identical twins, when they come out, they look the same genetically, but do they look the same when they're 50 and 60 years old? They've turned different genes on and off. You'll see an identical twin. I have a friend. Her sister was a big smoker. She died of a massive heart attack at 38 years old. My friend is an identical twin to her sister, now 58, living a healthy lifestyle. So the concept of epigenetics, the genes you turn on, the genes you turn off, is real. So if someone says to you tomorrow, you have the gene for diabetes, you're not going to say, well, let me sit behind the desk and eat potato chips and mashed potato because I'm going to get diabetes. You're going to say, no, I'm going to go out, I'm going to eat green leafy vegetables, and I'm going to eat nuts, and I'm going to be on a low glycemic diet, and I'm going to exercise and keep my weight down because I don't want to express the diabetes gene. Does that make sense? Now, in the world of pharmacogenomics, pharmacology, I think the genetic information is phenomenal because it's enabling us to understand what drugs work better in which people. For example, we have genes that we know increase the risk for people to develop muscle pain from statin therapy. We can look at the, the, what's called the genetic SNPs to determine should this person be on a high or a low Coumadin dose. I put this up because this is from a sheriff's website, and it's an, an example of epigenetics at its worst. This woman in 2001 is here in 2008. Look at this gentleman seven years later. Four years later. This is the epigenetics of drug use and alcohol use, right? So this is epigenetics at its worst. 
And this is epigenetics at its best. This is from the archives of internal medicine. The researchers wanted to understand why this Amish community, who happens to carry the obesity gene, are not obese. Any guesses? Very active, right. They're walking 18,000 steps a day on average. Who here has a pedometer? Who's, who's hitting 10,000 steps a day? We have a few. All of our hands should go up. So imagine 18,000 steps a day. So what the research has concluded is the obesity gene was trumped by physical activity. I worked a lot in the 90s with Dr. Dean Ornish, and he's a very dear friend. And he said, what if we do what we did for our heart patients in the 90s to men with Gleason 6 prostate cancer. He said, what if we teach a vegan diet, get people exercising, doing yoga and meditation, and have support groups, a full lifestyle change program? Everywhere on the left, each line represents an individual's genetic array, right? Where you see red, that's turned on oncogenes. This was published in the National Academy of Sciences. By the way, I'm not going to show you anything that was published in the Journal of St. Elsewhere, okay? <laughs> Over 500 cancer genes were down-regulated with lifestyle change. So this, to me, is powerful, powerful medicine. So when we start to think about the origins of uh, medical problems, we have to think about toxins and toxin exposure. When I did my cardiology training, no one told me that mercury was linked to atrial fibrillation and coronary artery disease, high mercury. No one told me that cadmium was linked to kidney disease. Right? And now we're seeing, of course, with these children in Flint, the, the potential impact of lead. So, and it's not just uh, heavy metals, but it's also the air we breathe. Right? It's the water we drink. It's the plastic bottles, the BPA that gets leached into the water. So this concept of toxin exposure, and if anyone is interested in learning practical and reading about practical applications to this, take a look at the Environmental Working Group website. Is everyone familiar with this? WW, you like it? EWG.org, www.ewg.org. So the foods we eat, how active are we? How do we respond to stress and tension? What kind of trauma have we had in our life? You know, trauma as a child, emotional trauma, is linked to addictions later in life. And that work was done right here in San Diego by Dr. Vince Folletti over at the Kaiser Permanente uh, Health System. 18,000 people in his research showing that the more abuse a child experiences, the more they resort to comfort in things like alcohol, cigarettes, food, and drugs, right? And you say to them, you go, wow, that really makes sense. And yet, we don't frequently address these things with our patients. Smoking, which I know no one here is doing, 
So all of these things interact with our genome to determine whether we're going to get sick or we're going to stay well. And this is where I think the approach of just taking one pill and thinking that's going to cure everything is very narrow-minded. We have to be thinking much bigger. So our genes haven't changed, right? Our genes haven't changed, but our environment has changed. And that's the thing that we can shift back. And we have a little bit of an issue in this country around food and the food industry. People make money addicting people to bad food, right? And it's not random that you can't eat one potato chip. That potato chip is designed for you to eat the entire bag. And there are research labs out there that are studying this as we speak. How do we get you to eat more of stuff that is what we'll call addicting and not healthy? So we have this disconnect between the health of our country and this, gee, how much money can we make in this industry? And only we can change it as individuals, right? And I see it happening every day. I see people making choices. And that's what it's about, and getting the word out. So our biography, this is one of our Ornish patients from the 90s. This guy can stand on his head. He can lift those legs up. He's doing great yoga. Um, We watched our patients transform uh, with the Lifestyle Change Program. That's why I started my research in the 90s in this area. And it's really what changed my thinking, was watching how people transformed as they took these proactive steps to health. So our biography is our biology, right? It truly is. So how do we begin to, what can we do? What are the practical steps to turning off the faucet? How do we clean up the mess? Well, Albert Einstein said we will never be able to solve our problems at the same order of complexity we use to create our problems. And in many ways, it's about going back to basics. Right? You know the hierarchy of needs of survival? Right? Well, the hierarchy of needs of survival are clean air, clean water, healthy food, community and connection, love and support, a roof over one's head. These are the basic needs for survival. So I teach it to my patients this way, and I'm going to give you, ask you guys this question. If you had a tree in your backyard that was sick, and the tree had some pretty sick fruit and some pretty sick branches, what would you do with it? What would you do with that tree? I'm hearing fertilize it. Prune it. So there's the surgeon. Who said prune it? There's there's your surgeon right here. Are you a surgeon? (laughs) No. Right, just spray it. Okay, go to the root of the problem, problem. right. So if I label this branch diabetes and high cholesterol and 
high blood pressure and depression and heartburn, all those things I showed you, I can go up and I can give every one of those, oh, I can give diabetes, I'll give metformin and high cholesterol, I'll give a statin and heartburn, I'll give, you know, the purple pill and so on. Or I can say, I'm going into the soil, right? So let's run through this together. If you have a sick fruit labeled diabetes, what you eat matters? Absolutely. You're going to be on a low glycemic index diet. Everyone familiar with what that is? Glycemic index, weights of food, there are two things, glycemic index and glycemic load, weights of food for its ability to spike up your sugar and insulin. If a food spikes up your sugar, right, you eat it and you go, woo, I'm feeling good, and then it spikes up your insulin, which is a growth factor. Insulin puts weight on your midline. Insulin responds to knock that sugar down. Anyone ever have this experience? You have some sugar and then all of a sudden you feel like, I need more sugar, right? So glycemic, insul- glycemic index gives us a number about how a food responds in your body. So, for example, let's take fruit juice. I drink a bottle of fruit juice. What do you think? That would be a low or a high glycemic index? Very high, right? So I have that apple juice. I get high. My insulin comes up. I crash down, and I have what's called sugar blues. I feel like I need more sugar. Now, what if I eat an apple instead? Right? When I bite into that apple, I'm biting into fiber. Fiber is going to slow the absorption of the sugar. So one of the healthiest things you can learn today is the glycemic index. Because what you'll do is you'll say, you know what? I'm not going to have Cheerios. I'm going to have fiber one if I have unsweetened fiber one if I have a cereal. I'm not going to have white bread. I'm going to have a whole grain, not whole wheat, a whole grain bread, a bread I can't roll into a little ball. I'm not going to have white rice. I'm going to have quinoa or a small amount of brown rice, right? You're going to be able to make decisions very quickly. I'm going to have an apple, peach, pear, plum, organic berries, um, but I'm going to stay away from too many dates and raisins because they're much higher in sugar. Make sense? All right, so learning the glycemic index is the first step because you're going to say, gee, we got to get this person on a low glycemic diet for their diabetes. We're going to talk about some nutraceuticals because the soil is nutrient depleted right now. So, of course, here I see a lot of people that are missing fundamental nutrients. And for a diabetic, for example, one of them is magnesium, chromium. So we can actually test for micronutrients. So micro-macronutrients, physical activity, will that affect someone's blood sugar? Absolutely. We talked about toxins. Toxins, persistent organic pollutants, are linked to diabetes. And so you go back to that Environmental Working Group website and you type in, what are the dirty dozen? Everybody's heard about this? So the dirty dozen are the foods you need to buy organic. And then there's a list in there called the Clean 15. Those are sprayed less. You don't need to buy those organic. And they're constantly monitoring this. 
So you get that list of the dirty dozen and the clean 15. You know, I have people who say to me, I buy everything organic, but if you want to save a little money, you can get that list and say, I'm really going to stick my berries, for example, are going to be organic because they're so thin-skinned, they're sprayed 30 times before you get them. If you like coffee, I'm not anti-coffee, I just encourage you to get it organic because the beans are sprayed multiple times before you get it. So you can take a little bit of control of this And what the research shows that's fascinating is that if you clear the toxins out, the persistent organic pollutants, you can start to show reductions in in your urine of these pollutants in as quickly as 10 days. This has been done in children. So it's good to make that shift if you can afford to. So what about sleep and diabetes? Yeah. If you're not sleeping well, your cortisol goes up, your stress level is high, and your sugar is high. What about stress and diabetes? Any diabetic under stress will say, my my sugar is high. What about the person who has high blood pressure now? Same drill. What kind of food should you eat to lower your blood pressure? Should you be exercising? Should you be sleeping well? One of the common, common things I see is sleep apnea. And it's missed all the time. And it's not only people of short necks and big, big area here, big chest. Yes, that's the obvious person. But I see many people who are thin and no one's thought about it until they come in with atrial fibrillation or high blood pressure. And if you know anyone with atrial fibrillation, make sure they get checked for sleep apnea. So all of these things interact. I like to think about the trunk of the tree as DNA. So all of these things interact with our DNA and determine what kind of fruit we're going to have on our tree. So if you have a health challenge, I want you to think not in isolation. You know, in Western medicine, we have silos cardiology, gastroenterology, dermatology, and everyone goes to a specialist and gets a test and a drug and so on. I want you to think systemically. This is the way we teach it now. That if you have a gut issue, if you have, anyone here have a gluten sensitivity or a dairy sensitivity, right? So you might say, gee, I have inflammation from gluten sensitivity or dairy sensitivity or corn sensitivity, but it's causing me arthritis or it's causing me to have mental fog, right? So it's not just, oh, gee, that's my brain, that's my heart, that's my gut. And every traditional healing system, whether it's traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, teaches go to the gut first. And if you look at what we're doing in, on the Western side, the go to the gut is all about taking a proton pump inhibitor and knocking out your acid production. And it's just, in some people, you may need that for a small period of time. But fixing the gut is fundamental to health. So there is a gut-heart brain connection. So you have to think systemically. So if somebody comes in and says, gee, I have arthritis, Now, if they have an injury and it's an old injury and it's only their elbow that hurts, then we know, okay, maybe that's a mechanical problem. But if someone says, my whole body aches, 
the first thing I do is put them on an elimination diet. And I ask a lot of questions about the gut. And we say, let's remove the things that are potentially causing the inflammation. What would those be? Maybe for someone it's dairy. Maybe for someone it's wheat. For others it's corn or eggs or soy or tree nuts or citrus. We have to sort through it. So what what is the underlying cause? Now, Western medicine, to me, still excels in the whole concept of diagnostics and interventions when we need it. And the good news is uh, we have a lot of technology these days that allow us to understand what's going on with the vascular system. And because I'm a cardiologist, I'll show you some cardiac images. So this is an example of a gentleman who in 1993 went and had what's called a coronary artery calcium score and had some calcium in his arteries and was told by his physician, because in 1993 no one knew what to do with this, well, don't worry about it. And then two years later he went back and scanned himself again and by 1997 his calcium score doubled from 56 to 128. Now you have to say, why is calcium leaving the bone, right? As we get older, we say, oh, we develop osteoporosis and ending up dystrophic calcification in the arteries. And what can we do to reverse that process? We know that if you have a coronary artery calcium score of zero, this is the one time in life you want to be a zero. It really is a very, very low negative predictive value is 99%, low risk a vascular event. As it gets higher, your risk increases. Here's an example of calcium in the aorta, and here's calcium lining uh, the left main, and then the LAD, and the diagonal coronary artery. So this is someone who has a lot of calcification. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have good blood flow. You have to think of this calcium like rust lining the walls of a pipe. Right? It doesn't mean you don't have good blood flow. You could still have good blood flow. We determine that with a different kind of test. So here's someone with extensive uh, calcium in their arteries. One of the tests that allow us to look at blood flow are nuclear imaging or stress tests with nuclear imaging. This is an example of normal blood flow to the heart at rest and at stress. And we look at the heart in a bunch of different images. And then, of course, today we have technology, if needed, that even allows certain people, if you have a lot of calcium, this doesn't work, but we can do an angiogram with just a IV. And this is an example of a CT angiogram. This is a bypass graft called a lima, left internal mammary, coming down here. And we can see this bypass graft is occluded, and we can see this right coronary artery is occluded. So technology is wonderful. It's wonderful for gathering of information. Here's one I like because it doesn't require radiation. It's a look at the arteries here in the neck, the carotid arteries. And you can see this is where the blood flows, but we can measure the thickness of the lining of the carotid artery. So for example, the thickness of this person's carotid, it should be about your age. So if you're 70, it should be 0.7. This person is 100 years old in his vascular system. Can we reverse this? Yes. 
That's why we want to know. So when you start looking from a cardiology standpoint, you start looking at uh, markers of uh, biomarkers and so on, it's not only for the heart. It's also for the brain. It's also for the kidney. So, for example, if you have inflammation, which we measure with something called LPPLA2, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, we can measure it with tumor necrosis factor and interleukins. That inflammation is everywhere in your body. All of these things go into our health. And when you, when you start to put a plan together for yourself, I want you to say, what, to, what am I going to do for body, mind, and spirit? Right? What am I going to eat? What supplements am I going to take? What do I, am I going to be physically active? What am I going to do? Am I going to have enough laughter and joy in my life? Right? Am I doing my volunteer work? Am I sleeping well at night? What am I going to do for body, mind, and spirit? And that's how I want you to think about uh, your health. We also know that infections are linked to cardiovascular disease. Inside the plaques of arteries have been found hepatitis, H. pylori, uh, chlamydia, and so on. So it's not just about that cholesterol, it's about what happens to the cholesterol. So if you go and you want to talk to your physician and say, well, I heard this lecture, uh, I want to know a couple of things. I don't just want to know my total cholesterol, my triglycerides, my HDL, my LDL. That's old school. You say, I want to know my ApoB, and I want you to remember B is the bad boy. ApoB and LDL particle number are the two important ones for determining risk. I want to know my ApoA1, ApoB ratio. I want to know how much oxidized LDL I have. I want to know if I have a genetic marker that runs in families called LP little a. I want to be checked for inflammation, C-reactive protein, MPO, plaque 2. I want to, I want to have the, this more advanced testing. Oh, and by the way, I want to have a fasting insulin level done. I want to have a three-month blood sugar, the hemoglobin A1C, and at a minimum, you want to know your 25-hydroxy vitamin D level. You want to know your homocysteine level. So you, in essence, want to have what's called an advanced lipid metabolic biomarker profile. And these are available all over today. What I'm talking about is not esoteric. And then we have to get serious. So now you have all this information, you have all these body scans, what else can we do? So you come in the office and we say, okay, let's check out your waist circumference. Now your waist circumference depends on your ethnic background. So if you're a Caucasian male, uh, the number is 40 inches, and a female, 35. These are, these, and, it, and it differs if you're of a different ethnic group. Right? And when you measure your waist circumference, you know, a lot of guys like to wear their pants below their abdomen. That doesn't count what your pants waist is. So we actually have to measure it. Why is it important? The cells that we have in our midline, that visceral fat, what we call that, visceral adipose tissue, 
are very different than the cells which line our body, our subcutaneous fat. This visceral adipose tissue in and of itself produces inflammatory cytokines. So it produces things like tumor necrosis factor, HSCRP, interleukin-6. Why is it important? You can have arthritis just from having too much weight here. These are the inflammatory cytokines that have been linked to depression. We call it cytokine sickness. So just having the extra weight uh, is an issue. We also know now that it leads to the oxidation of LDL and is involved, inflammatory triggers are involved in the laying down of plaque. So many cardiologists now say, gee, now we know why aspirin works for the heart. It's not only antiplatelet, it's anti-inflammatory. Now we know why statins work. They're anti-inflammatory. And there's at least one major study called Prove It where they looked at markers for inflammation and LDL and found that the people who got the most benefit from the statin therapy were the ones that had the inflammatory markers go down, not just the LDL alone. So we now know this in cardiology as important. Yeah, that is life-changing information. What's wrong with the scale? Anyone know? Everybody goes, you go to the doctor, I do it too, I weigh my patients. But it just gives you that, it gives you a weight. But what we like to do is something very simple. You take that weight and you plot it up against your height. This is quick and dirty, right? You say, what's my body mass index? You get this simple form, every doctor's office has it. You say, here's my height, here's my weight. Where does that put me? Uh-oh, I'm in the obese range. I'm, I'm one of those red states, all right? So this is a simple way of doing it. It doesn't cost anything. Who here has their height measured when they go see their doctor? Good, you have good doctors, good. A lot of people don't do that. And patients say, gee, I'm shrinking. I lost four inches. And no one's mentioned. Well, that's good. So let's say you decide you're going to, oh, I heard what Dr. Guarneri said. I'm going to go home and I'm going to go on some radical crazy diet, which I'm not advocating, by the way. And all of a sudden, you start to lose weight. Well, you can lose both of these women have lost weight, and they can weigh the same thing on the scale, but what's different is their body composition. This woman who doesn't exercise may come in and be less on the scale, but she's all fat. She's what we call skinny fat. Skinny fat is real, and it's worse than someone who's overweight but fit. So skinny fat, this is the person who will come and say, you know, I lost 15 pounds and I can't lose another pound. Why? Because they lost what? Muscle. Muscle. Exactly. Now this woman says, I'm going to go exercise, I'm going to yoga class, I'm doing everything I need to do. She's going to gain muscle and have less fat. The only way you can tell this really is with a body composition. And I think it's important because I have people who get a little discouraged. They say, you know, my pants fit differently and I feel differently. But the scale isn't moving so much. And I say, let's do a body composition and let's see what's going on. So not only can you measure uh, 
how much fat someone has, you can also measure a basal metabolic rate. Not everyone has the same resting basal metabolic rate. Some people, you know, you, you probably know people that they can eat everything and continue to be thin. They have a really fast basal metabolic rate. Some people look at food and gain two pounds. Right? So we can determine who you are. And then we can do another simple little test that looks at what's called the hip-to-waist ratio, where we uh, sort of put a tape measure around you right here between the bottom of the 10th rib and the iliac crest, and that gives us your waist. And then we come around and we measure your hip at the greatest is the greater trochanter of the hip. You can feel it when you just go like that. And this is why it's important. That simple little cost-nothing test, the waist-to-hip ratio, if you're a guy and it's greater than 1 or a woman and it's greater than 0.85, you are at high risk. So this is where we start to talk about people looking like apples, right? Do you look like an apple or do you look like a pear? I know in the, my Italian family, everyone looks like a pear. That's less, but it's actually less risk. It's the apple with more visceral adipose tissue that places you at a higher risk. So really, I want you to think about lifestyle as your intervention. Right? What can you do based on science, based on evidence, that's going to impact your health? And we have to eat, let's face it. So we might as well eat correctly. Well, I think these are our weapons of mass destruction. I have to be honest. And I was raised on a few of these. Anybody else get frosted flakes? I used to, all right. So they, they, you can just look at this and say, gee, this is all high in sugar because the, these chips just get converted to sugar. The body sees the chips as sugar. White bread, right? These are all your high glycemic index foods. This is not exactly fiber one unsweetened, right? So uh, high in sugar, no nutrients, fiber, zero. Uh, oxidized fats, trans fats, food additives. Now, if any of you have kids, you know these French fries, when they get into the car seat and you find them three months later, right? They look the same. So how could that be food? It can't. It's not possible. It's just not possible. All right. So then we have major medical journals, which... Uh, you know, you can eat fried chicken and look like Dolly, and 7-Up will add years to your life. And people actually, I see people reading this stuff at the checkout line. And, uh, you know, if you see it enough, you might actually start to believe it. And then we have the business people. <laughs> and you think, wow, diet water. And you pay extra for that. <laughs> That's a good business. I, I sort of like that. So what do we have in the language of science? So let's go back to 1999 to a study called the Lyon Heart Study. Who's heard of the Mediterranean diet? Yay, everybody, right? Now, you can mess up any diet. I have people say to me, I'm vegetarian. Meanwhile, they're 40 pounds overweight. What do you think they're eating? Cheese, cheese, cheese and bread and pizza and, you know, tons of 
peanut butter and, you know, all sorts of stuff, right? Oh, but they're, they're vegetarian. Well, that's not a healthy vegetarian. You can do the same thing with the Mediterranean diet. You can say, I'm Mediterranean diet and I'm eating pizza and cheese and white bread and so on. But the Mediterranean diet is truly a diet based on fruits, vegetables, whole grains, olive oil, beans, nuts, legumes, seeds, herbs, and spices, some fish, right? And here's your cheese, and here's your meat and your sweets. This is the basis of your diet. Well, what did they find? They found that there was a 72% reduction in cardiovascular deaths and recurrent events in people on the Mediterranean diet versus the conventional diet at the time. They also found an 80% reduction in late cancers. So when I see some research like this, that the study had to be stopped early because there was such a difference in the groups, they said, we can't keep going. We have to let people have this information. We should, at a basis, I mean, be eating a Mediterranean diet. This is, this is at, like, step one. So if you go to 2002, substantial evidence indicates that diets using non-hydrogenated fats as the predominant fat. So now everybody's saying, let's look at the labels. We don't want trans fats. We don't want partially hydrogenated oil. Whole grains, again, not whole wheat, and not multigrain, because multigrain is a secret way of slipping in the bad stuff, right? It's whole grain. Whole grain is the main form of carbohydrate. Fruits and vegetables and omega-3 can protect against heart disease. So I'll give you my little omega-3 acronym. Uh, if you want to eat a diet that's high in omega-3s, and today we measure your omega-3 levels, the acronym for that is SMASH, right? So S-M-A-S-H. So you have sardines. For those of you that love them, they are high in omega-3. Mackerel anchovy, salmon, hopefully wild salmon, and herring. Those are your high ones, okay, in omega-3, if you want to eat that. Here's another one, 2004. Now we're moving along. Markers of inflammation, CRP, interleukin-6, interleukin-7, interleukin-18, and decreased insulin resistance are all linked to the Mediterranean diet. For cardiovascular alone, there are 1,400 Mediterranean diet studies. And I will not put you through all these studies. But the Mediterranean diet has improved cognitive decline, cardiovascular disease, arthritis, and so on. The only thing is you have to really follow the Mediterranean diet and not just do uh, the cheese and the uh, bread. This was one of our patients in the 90s who had a blockage in his artery here, and we put him on a vegetarian diet, uh, yoga, meditation. This was one of the Ornish patients, support group. You can see decreased blood flow to his heart muscle. A year later, I think you can agree there's an improvement in that blood vessel, but more importantly, no longer having angina. We had a 91% reduction in chest pain events, and marked improvement in blood flow. This is just the power of lifestyle change. Imagine when you mix the power of lifestyle change with a little bit of medication when needed, supplements when needed, right? It, it becomes magic. You can really help people. 
Uh, I like this. This was uh, also from 2004, the Journal of Clinical Nutrition. They asked a group of uh, a small group of people to eat an egg. Uh, muffin, a sausage muffin sandwich, two hash browns, uh, and so on. Over 15 minutes, they consumed 51 grams of fat, 32 grams of protein, and 81 grams of carbohydrate. And they said, let's measure the markers of inflammation in their blood. So we have our meal. And what they measured was something called NF-kappa-B, now, NF-kappa-B, when it is expressed, turns on the DNA that produces pro-inflammatory cytokines. This is where the food we eat starts to impact our gene expression. Right? So this is what they found. This is the base of water over three hours, so no real change with water. Then people eat the meal. Look at their NF-kappa-B. Sores goes up again at two hours, stays up to about three hours. Now, what are people usually looking to do after three hours after their meal? Eat again, right? This is where you develop cognitive decline, arthritis, heart disease, and so on. Again, through the food that we eat. So the lessons of the Mediterranean diet are intake of vegetables, fruit, minimally processed whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds, all decrease risk, not only of cardiovascular disease, it's good for your brain. Now you may say, what kind of fruit? I'm going to say low glycemic fruits, the apple, peach, pear, plum, berries. Should I buy them organic? Yes, the dirty dozen. I want you to buy them organic. Avoid foods high in sugar and added sugar. Sugar will raise your triglycerides and lower your good cholesterol and make more small, dense LDL particles. So when you're doing a low glycemic diet, you're spiking up your sugar less. You're spiking up your insulin less. And you have to pay attention to all the names that sugar is hidden under. Is agave sugar? Right? Everything, oh, I don't eat sugar, I use agave, right? I use uh, honey. Uh, It's still all sugar. So uh, I encourage you to, and the liquid calories you can get rid of immediately. There's no reason to drink soda. There really isn't. There's fruit juice. You don't need fruit juice. Now, I'm not talking about you have a flu, you're dehydrated, and you can't even get out of bed. Fine. I'm I'm talking as a way of life. And the other one that the body sees is sugar. What's the other liquid calorie that the body sees? Alcohol. Alcohol, exactly. The slippery slope of alcohol, exactly. So anything that's white, we want to avoid. Carbohydrates, refined starches. So people say, well, what am I going to dip in my hummus? I say, dip a baby carrot in your hummus. (laughs) Dip a celery stick in your hummus. Oh, okay, that's a good idea. Right? What am I going to have for dessert? I said, bake an apple. Bake it. Or bake a pear and put some cinnamon on it. Right? Anyone like soybeans, like adamame? Right? So there are foods that really have nutritional value. Uh, Adamame is one, it's soluble fiber, it lowers blood sugar. Uh, it's got isoflavones, which are good for your bones. They're good for your eyes, genistin. So I, I like this one as long as you don't saturate it with bad stuff uh, after you cook it. 
It also has been shown uh, to lower cholesterol. We know green leafy vegetables reduce the risk of diabetes by 14%. So the cruciferous vegetables are my favorite if you can digest them. There are some people that are allergic to sulfur and can't tolerate things like Brussels sprouts. But for those that can, if you think about the cruciferous ones, you have cabbage and broccoli and cauliflower and bok choy and arugula, all of these. Find something that you like. By the way, um, a lot of research is being done on broccoli sprouts now as an anti-cancer drug. Broccoli contains sulforaphane, which has uh, cancer protection. So all of these are good. And if you have arthritis, the first step before I get you, depending on how bad it is, I may just say, you know, let's go off the nightshade foods. Let's see if tomato, potato, eggplant, um, salsa, tomatillo, let's see if the nightshades are causing your arthritis. And some people, their arthritis gets better just off of that. Other people have to stop dairy and their arthritis gets better. Other people, it may be gluten. But sometimes we can just start simply with the nightshades. So here's your cruciferous vegetable list. And I give this list to my patients. I gave it to one guy. I said, I want you to circle all the ones you'll eat. He read it and read it and looked at it. <laughs> looked at me and looked at the list. And you know what he circled? It, I was shocked. Watercress. I said, of all the things on this list, that's the only thing you'll eat. <laughs> now, fiber is magic food. It's a functional food. Beans, carrots, apples, vegetables, green leafy vegetables. What does fiber do to blood sugar? Lower it. What does it do to cholesterol? Lowers it, which is why my patients make smoothies in the morning, and I put a lot of fiber in there. Lowers cholesterol. And what does it do if you can't have a bowel movement? It's great for constipation. So fiber is one of my uh, magic ones. Uh, and these are just some good examples. Now, uh, bananas are higher in sugar. If you look at your glycemic index, you'll say, oh, gee, that's in the middle. They're very sweet. Uh, apples, again, berries, orange. Uh, the rest of these are not high in sugar. Uh, prunes are higher in sugar. So you also have to adjust it. You know, if you have a two prunes, it's not the end of the world. If you have a bag of prunes, uh, it's different. All of the legumes, we talked about the vegetables. And when you look at your oats, for example, if you're an oatmeal eater, please get the real stuff. Take the 20 minutes to make it. Because all that instant oatmeal, you have to say, how is it instant? What have they done? They've pre-processed it. Your body sees it as sugar. It's high on the glycemic index. So if you have to have oatmeal, uh, we really want it to be the steel cut, slow cooked. But even oatmeal is a grain, and that does go to sugar. So in the morning, if you're really looking to cut down on your sugars, you may say, let me poach some eggs. Let me, and let me make a protein smoothie. So without uh, sugar. So lots of benefits of fiber. Our goal is 35 grams of fiber a day. Now, you don't have to throw it in scoops because you'll expand and you won't talk to me and you'll never invite me back here, that's for sure. But you can take some in your food and then you can add extra to your smoothie. Uh, psyllium, for example, is a form of fiber. Uh, I like only the, uh, the blonde psyllium that's not doesn't have color added. There are a lot of products on the market that have color added. Blueberries, you need them organic. 
Uh, they help to prevent urinary tract infections. They're good for your eyes. All your dark berries are a functional food. Now you might say, well, um, red wine is a dark berry, right? And you know, even a good Pinot Noir will give you only four milligrams of resveratrol, but when we put you on resveratrol, that's the one time we may use a supplement at 250 milligrams. So you'd have to, you have to use, drink a lot of red wine. Uh, nuts, nuts are great. Uh, there are they're a source of magnesium, manganese, copper, zinc, calcium. Hard to get this anywhere else. Magnesium you can get from your green leafy vegetables. Uh, so nuts are really good. They're just really fattening. So you know if you're going to go through the whole Costco thing of nuts, that's a lot of calories. But if you have ten nuts, nuts should be used as a garnish. A little bit of nuts, slivers of nuts, slices of nuts, handful of nuts, uh, not the whole big thing. And I recommend them unsalted if you have a, a, a sodium uh, concern. Two ounces of nuts daily, replacing carbohydrate, improves the gl uh, glycemic load and control uh, in diabetics. This is from Diabetes Care. So I believe in using nuts that... Uh, Med study showed nuts, extra nuts or extra virgin olive oil versus a conventional diet, both the nuts and the extra virgin and the olive oil, 30% cardiovascular risk reduction. So I like nuts. This is what it looks like scientifically when you eat your uh, sardines or your smashed fish, your omega-3. You produce anti-inflammatory and anti-thrombotic cytokines. Right? You decide you're going to get a big muffin that's filled with omega-6, omega-6 containing oils. You're going to produce inflammatory cytokines that are pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic. This is the difference between arthritis, cognitive decline, no, and heart disease versus no heart disease, no arthritis. The food gets broken down, sends signals, to produce proteins, the proteins you make are going to impact how you feel. Okay, here's that glycemic load again. So you're going to go and get a glycemic index. Uh, and the obvious foods, the cookies, cakes, candy, ice cream, white stuff, that's all high on the glycemic index. Well, everyone's different. We have a gen genetic polymorphism that affects how we metabolize caffeine. I remember my Uncle Ben used to say, I'm going to go to bed, let me have an espresso. And we'd all say, how could you do that? And he'd have his espresso and go to sleep. Somebody else will have an espresso and be like this. And a lot of that is how you metabolize caffeine. So you know who you are. Again, if you're going to have coffee, uh, we want it to be organic. Tea is what I recommend second to water consumption uh, for everyone. And if you like tea, black tea, green tea, uh, tea has a lot of benefits, high in polyphenols, high in catechins, high in flavonoids. Uh, very nice study in the cardiology literature looking at long-term and short-term tea drinking showing improvement in the lining of the blood vessel. Right, the ability of the blood vessel to dilate. So if, if you uh, like green tea, I invite you to drink that. If you can't tolerate the caffeine in the green tea, you dip it once 
and then you put it in the second glass. And it will, that's nature's way of decaffeinating it. Or you can get decaffeinated tea. Uh, I don't recommend teas that are filled with sugar. Uh, chai that's made in a conventional uh, restaurant is usually filled with sugar. So you have to know what's in your tea. So what we eat sends a signal to our DNA. We either produce inflammatory or anti-inflammatory cytokines. I don't want you to think of food allergies as, oh, gee, I eat that, my throat swells. That's an IgE reaction. There's also something called food sensitivities. Gee, I notice when I eat too much dairy, all of a sudden my sinuses are congested. I get earaches or I get gas and bloating or every time I eat dairy, I get arthritis, or corn, whatever it is. I want you to pay attention to how your body feels after the food you eat, because food sensitivities uh, can lead, and and pro-inflammatory foods will lead to upregulation of NF-kappa-B and lead to inflammation. So when Hippocrates said food is medicine, (coughs) food is medicine. And uh, it's the one thing, if I can convince you of today, uh, that's critically important. Uh, I know everyone here exercises, right? (laughs) Right? Well, you can always get a good-looking personal trainer or exercise with a friend. But the reality is, when we go into the research and you just pull out a few studies, right? Uh, This is one of my favorites. They took women, 3,000 who had gestational diabetes, and they randomized them to diet and exercise, metformin, and placebo. And they said, let's see who develops diabetes at four years. Here's the placebo group, nice and diabetic, almost 40%. Here's the ones that just took the pill, and here's the ones that did the lifestyle change. So when you see something like this, every hospital should be implementing this research for diabetes prevention. This was another study that I liked that came out in 2010 that showed exercise, strength training and aerobic exercise actually reduces inflammation, increases the good stuff, adiponectin, which moves sugar into the cells, decreases resistance, and decreases leptin. So exercise is also anti-inflammatory. So when you think about it, uh, who exercises and feels a relief from stress? Is that a, yeah, that's a good one for us. The research also shows exercise produces brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps with depression, right? We know it lowers blood pressure. We know it decreases our weight. We feel energized. Who sleeps better at night when they exercise, right? And so it should be the first treatment for insomnia, not Ambien. It should be, are you exercising? Are you depressed? The first treatment should be getting out with some friends in a program and get you exercising. So this is the other area where I think we have to spend a little time. Right? Says, uh, have you been messing around with alternative medicine, Mr. Wordle? Gee, Doc, how did you know? Now, I like to use supplements in an evidence-based way, and I'm going to run you through some thinking and some research. But really, if you want to step into this world, you should work with a clinician that understands this world, because it's not the same for everyone. We can do a blood test on you, what's called a NutriVal, and see what supplements you need. 
We can look at your endothelial function, the lining of your blood vessel, and make decisions based on that and then recheck you. So not everyone needs the same thing. And I see people coming in with way too many supplements. So if you want to lower your triglycerides, I want you to think about omega-3, fish oil. Four grams of fish oil will lower triglycerides 45%. If you want to lower your triglycerides and raise your good cholesterol, your HDL, we think about the B vitamin called niacin. And niacinamide, which has just been, uh, a report has just been published, there's niacin, which raises HDL and lowers triglycerides, and then there's another form of niacin, niacinamide, which has been shown to prevent skin cancer. And that just came out less than six months ago. So niacin, uh, treatment with niacin, reduction in cardiovascular events of 34%. So in certain people, I will use niacin. But niacin should be done with a physician and monitored because you shouldn't do it if you have gout or liver problems or ulcers. Uh, and you want to use the right brand and make sure you're getting the right effect. Magnesium, my favorite mineral. Why is it my favorite? Takes away extra heartbeats, helps us to sleep at night, softens the stool so we're not constipated anymore, improves insulin resistance, improves diabetes parameters. The only people who shouldn't take magnesium are those that have kidney problems. But magnesium is a great, great mineral uh, to take. So magnesium decreases all the markers for inflammation and improves insulin resistance. And, you know, if you go and get your magnesium level measured and somebody says, oh, your level looks good, say, hey, doc, is that my intracellular magnesium? Because the serum magnesiums always look good, almost always. If your serum magnesium is low, intracellular is really low. Resveratrol, 250 milligrams a day. That's about, uh, depending on your wine, it could, be, it could be a lot of red wines. Easier to take the pill. Uh, I do see people who don't want to take statin therapy. In that case, I may use Reggie's rice. There are many supplements that lower cholesterol naturally. The first is changing your diet. Get off the animal products. Add a lot of fiber in your diet and fiber into your smoothie. And then we can enter the world of supplements like Reggie's rice, berberine, right? There are many that will lower. Citrus bergamot is one of my favorites. Uh, that will lower cholesterol. So again, uh, we can use supplements in an evidence-based manner. Turmeric. This is my favorite spice. Right? If you like the taste of it, put it on your food. Uh, if you don't like the taste of it, take it in a pill form. 500 milligrams twice a day has been shown to decrease fasting blood sugar decrease the three-month blood sugar hemoglobin A1C. So turmeric is a good one. So instead of sugar being the spice, go for the anti-inflammatory spices. So you have turmeric, you have basil, you have ginger, you have rosemary. Uh, these are the ones you want to use. Plant sterols. Plant sterols look like cholesterol, so they trick the body a little bit, thinking that, uh, that blocking cholesterol absorption can lower LDL about 12%, so that's another one. So when you think about how do I take a supplement to lower my cholesterol, you're thinking about citrus bergamot, you're thinking about reduced rice, fiber, 
plant sterols, and then we can go to a whole host of uh, other ones from there. You can get your plant sterols from foods, uh, mainly the foods we've been talking about, but the amount you need, uh, it's hard to eat that much food because you do really need two to three grams a day uh, to lower uh, your cholesterol. Green tea, we talked a little bit about this. It's a natural uh, HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor, so it's sort of like nature's statin. Berberine is nature's PCSK9 inhibitor. So again, uh, when people say, what should I drink, Dr. G? I say, if you like green tea, let's have you have a couple of cups of green tea a day, as long as, as, long as you can tolerate the caffeine or you can decaffeinate it naturally. Probiotics, very, very important. This is where the microbiome comes in. You're going to be hearing more and more about this. Get an expert lecturer to come in and talk to you about the implications on the microbiome. We're starting to, to note that depending on what kind of bugs you have in your gut, that may be linked to cardiovascular disease, linked to depression, linked to diabetes, linked to obesity. This concept of fecal transplants you're going to hear more and more about that. This was a very nice study where a probiotic was given uh, to, for four weeks, L. acidophilus, showing it improved insulin sensitivity. We give probiotics when we give antibiotics. Right? We give probiotics when we're repairing the gut. There are different types of probiotics. People that have ulcerative colitis, for example, the research shows a probiotic called, called VSL number three gets those people, 85% of them, into remission at one year. That's a big deal. Right? So again, you have to know what's the right ones. Here's berberine. Uh, berberine increases uh, activity, increases uh, blocks PCSK9. So it sort of acts like the new drug that's out. But I use berberine before meals to lower blood sugar, and I use berberine to lower cholesterol. So berberine does work. Pomegranate, not the whole juice. Don't have a big glass. Take a shot glass, one ounce, put it in your water. Uh, one little ounce of pomegranate reduces the thickness of the lining of the carotid artery. So if you like it, one little ounce of it is good for you. Here's another one uh, that takes about three months to kick in. It's a B5, 300 milligrams, three times a day, lowers cholesterol. Again, should be done with a physician's guidance. CoQ10, who takes CoQ10 here? Good. If you're on a statin, I suggest you take CoQ10 because the, the statins do a couple of things. They block not only cholesterol production, they block testosterone. So now we're seeing a lot of men with low testosterone. Uh, some of that is statin-related. And they also block the conversion of the thyroid hormone, the T4 to T3. So we have to pay attention to all these things when someone is on statin therapy. This was a very nice study, CoQ10, 100 milligrams, three times a day for people with congestive heart failure, showing significant reductions in mortality, hospitalizations, uh, and so on. So when most of my colleagues now on the cardiology side are using CoQ10 for people with congestive heart failure. And this, just, this came out in 2013. So 
You know, we have to talk about this area because this one is critically important, which is stress. And uh, Hans Salye says stress can be defined as a state one experiences when there is a mismatch between perceived demands and our perceived ability to cope. Right? Why is stress important? This is what I've learned in 20 years of practice. If people are stressed out, they're going to go home and do what? Eat, drink. Right? They're not, this is not the person that says, oh, I'm going to make Dr. Guarneri's green smoothie with protein tonight. Right? So we have to always ask the question, what's driving the train? Most people know what to do. It's the very rare person in Southern California that I find really doesn't know that lentils and beans and legumes are good and having too many candy bars is bad. Right? So frequently, the thing that's driving it is our emotional side. You know, I've had patients say to me, I have 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes. Right? This box of donuts made me feel good right now. And then people feel guilty afterwards. Right? So we have to look at what drives us. And for many people, it's stress. Now, this has been around for a long time. This is from a textbook on American nervousness from 1881, and it said nervousness comes from steam power, the periodic press, the telegraph, the sciences, and the mental activity of women. (laughs) Of course, that's going to be my favorite one, right? Especially since I have the podium. I just love this. My friend Lee sent this to me, and the story went, gee, the kids are quiet. We better go check on them. Now, you all had the right reaction. You saw this picture and you laughed. And that's just, that's exactly right, because it's your reaction to a situation that determines the effect it has on your body. So if your foot is on the gas pedal and you're angry and you're hostile and, you know, you're just stressing out all day, as we say, you're going to make your platelets sticky. You're going to raise your renin and your angiotensin, which raises your blood pressure. You're going to start eating things you shouldn't eat. And the cortisol that you're releasing is going to put weight on your midline, make you diabetic. Your cholesterol goes up. And this is the easy one. When you get nervous, what happens to your heart? That's the one thing you could feel, right? You don't feel your blood pressure always going up. You don't feel your coronaries constricting. Some people do. Most people don't feel that. The obvious one is the heart. But all these things are happening. So I want you to think about it this way. Uh, The Dow goes down. You have an initiating event, right? You can say, wow, the Dow is down. I can finally buy Apple. Or you can say, holy cow, doom and gloom, it's all over. It's our response and our perception that has the effect, right? We have to change our response and our perception. And we have to know who we are. Are you the person with the glass half full? Or are you the person with the glass half empty? So we know that as cortisol goes up, this is one of the key stress hormones, DHEA, the happy hormone, goes down. President Obama is an example of aging right in front of us, right? Poor guy now has white hair. Uh, We know that This leads to accelerated aging. So look at what happens when cortisol is high. Accelerated aging, brain cell death, bad memory, 
Osteoporosis, we lose our muscle mass, our skin starts sagging, we get fat around the midline, and we're more prone to infections and high blood sugar. What does this sound like? I can't remember a thing. I have osteoporosis, and my muscles are not good. We call this aging in this country. And the reality is we're accelerating the process with the stress hormones. We know that anger is linked to cardiovascular death, the people with the highest anger. These are the people that we call, you know, hotheads. I mean, we, we, may, we say things like, his blood is boiling. She blew a gasket, right? Think about what's going on when you say that. Their blood is boiling, right? They blew a gasket. And we know depression is linked to cardiovascular health. People that are depressed are less likely to say, let me eat the Brussels sprouts and go exercise. Right? More likely to say, I have 20 friends in this box of donuts or a pack of cigarettes. So these are real things that we have to address, and yet we're only addressing cholesterol and blood pressure. And it's much bigger than that. This was a lovely study that came out in 2012. This is the American Heart Association. This is Rob Schneider's work. People were followed for 5.4 years, people with high blood pressure, 48% reduction in cardiovascular heart attack, stroke, and sudden death, 48% reduction in people that did transcendental meditation two times a day, 20 minutes. So I look at this kind of research and I say, meditation is medicine, right? Food is medicine. Not just what comes in a pill bottle from the pharmacy is medicine. So we need to begin to start thinking differently. We need to leave this concept of healthcare as an institution-led service. It really is about social care as part of our community, right? It's not just up to the hospitals. It's up to all of us. This concept of curing and fixing needs to shift to preventing and early intervention. I really believe that. I want to go from treating disease to creating health. Here's a new concept, health creation. When someone comes to see me, it's not, I'm going to, I want to treat your disease. It's how can we create more health in your life? How do we go from just buildings to healing environments? How do we stop just having sustainability as an add-on? I can do a three-hour talk, and for those of you who've heard Dr. Ramanatham speak about the climate and the issues that we have about the planet, sustainability must be integrated into everything we do, into our culture, our practice, and our training. And it's all of our business. Like this shift that we have to see, this movement toward prevention, this movement toward health creation requires all of us. It's what we do in our office. It's what we do in our homes. It's what we choose to buy and what we choose to not buy. Right? It's where we put our consumer impact. And I invite you all to think about that. So I created the Academy for Integrative Health and Medicine, not with a particular degree, not just for MDs or DOs, but for all people who believe that health is about care and should be available to all, where prevention is our foundation, and we'll use those mechanical fixes, the stents and the bypasses when we need them. 
and where we work with all healthcare providers with the goal being to heal body, mind, and spirit. And it may be that you need me as the MD today, but you may need the naturopathic doctor or the chiropractor or the nurse or the psychologist tomorrow. We need to all work together with the goal being toward health. Thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.